Welcome to the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series, which can be heard on VHHA.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get podcasts. We're a member of the Virginia Audio Collective and the Family Podcast Network. You can also hear us on the radio each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, 107.7 FM, and 8.20 a.m. across Central Virginia. And Wednesdays at 1 p.m. on 93.9 FM in Richmond. Please send any questions, comments, or feedback to PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. Again, that's PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. And today we're excited to be joined by Rufus Phillips, the CEO of the Virginia Association of Free and Charitable Clinics, for a conversation about the work of free and charitable clinics, their role in the broader healthcare delivery system, and more. And with that, welcome to the program, Rufus. Thank you so much, Julian. We're very excited to be on the program and to talk about the free clinics. Well, we're excited to have you. And so to start with, um, and you just gave us a segue to the first question, if you could, Rufus, just give us an overview about Virginia's network of free and charitable clinics, of which I think there are more than 60 in the Commonwealth, as well as the clinical and professional staff who support them and the patient population they serve. Happy to do so. So we've got, you said, uh, about 60 clinics throughout the Commonwealth in every region. And these clinics, for the most part, have been around for several years. And they serve primarily patients that are either uninsured or underinsured. And despite the fact that we've had Medicaid expansion, which has been a great thing in the state of Virginia, we continue to have folks that are uninsured and underinsured and The clinics play an important part in providing, for the most part, primary care services to those individuals, a lot of uh, preventative care screenings that are important, and work very closely, by the way, with the hospitals and health systems throughout the state to address that need. Do you wish you could focus on practicing medicine without all the distractions? Covaris is here to help. As a leader in medical professional liability insurance with more than 45 years experience, Covaris provides insurance protection with data-driven predictive modeling to help you mitigate the risk of claims. By combining insurance protection with risk analytic services, you can reduce distractions and focus on improving clinical, operational, and financial outcomes. Covaris is reinventing what you should expect from your medical professional liability provider. Find out all Covaris can offer you at Covaris.com. That's C-O-V-E-R-Y-S.com. Insurance products issued by Medical Professional Mutual Insurance Company and its insurance subsidiaries, Boston, Massachusetts. In the past five years, we've gone through two epical healthcare events in Virginia. The first, which you just mentioned, Medicaid expansion in 2018. And that was followed by the COVID-19 pandemic, which began in 2020. If we could, let's address expansion first, since you just mentioned that. As many people know, more than 500,000 Virginians have gained coverage through expansion initially, and then more Virginians have done so due to eligibility changes during the COVID public health emergency. Obviously, when that public health emergency ends at some point, perhaps later this year, uh, some of those individuals will have to reapply or review their eligibility to see if they still qualify. I think most people would say, and we certainly feel this way, that expansion has been a net positive for Virginia and public health. I wonder how it's impacted the free clinic community, because I have to imagine that some of your patient population gained coverage through expansion, giving them access to more treatment options, but I I imagine there are some other elements there as well. So tell us about what expansion has meant for the free and charitable clinics and for the patient population it serves. So back in 2019, when expansion first occurred, 
the uh, clinics had started proactively planning for it in the sense that they knew that they would have patients that would become newly eligible. And the primary focus there was to help those people enroll. And so they worked, uh, the clinics did hand-in-hand with DMAS and with Enroll Virginia and with the MCOs to make that happen. And I'm proud to say that they were a big part of that effort. And also the clinics recognized that there was still some need that remains, unfortunately, above the Medicaid expansion cutoff, which is 138% of the federal poverty level. And traditionally, Julian, clinics had an income eligibility level that typically stopped at 200% FPL. They recognized, though, ahead of Medicaid expansion that there is a population of people in the state, again, unfortunately, that might be anywhere from 200% to 300% to even as high as 400% FPL, who, because of the cost of living, often, unfortunately, sacrifice health care. And so a lot of the clinics responded by raising their eligibility levels to try to help those individuals. And so most of our clinics now are at 300% FPL, some at 400%, as I mentioned. And that's a population of individuals, working individuals in the state who uh, may sometimes be without insurance for a variety of reasons. It could be that their employer doesn't offer it in the service sectors. It could be that they, they couldn't afford insurance for whatever reason on the exchange. And so you uh, have a population of people that the clinics are now serving in, in that range of FPL. And so that's been a big change. And I think, you know, the clinics have really responded. And then the pandemic made things even more challenging for that group of people. I just want to underscore something you just said a moment ago. It's a point that's been made repeatedly, but it does bear repeating. And that's this. Many of the people who are served by uh, the safety net providers like free and charitable clinics, these are people who are working. They're just people that either because of their income earning level or because of a lack of, of available coverage options through their employer, or as you mentioned, because they may not be eligible for Medicaid expansion, but they may not be able to uh, afford insurance through the marketplace, even with subsidies. So it's important to just underscore, you know, these are our friends and neighbors. These are folks who are contributing to society, but for one reason or another, access to care escapes them. It's a challenge for them. And so it's it's really important, I think, just to, to make that point and to underscore it. And then also, I think it's good to hear that many of your members have in enhance their eligibility standards to address the needs and to respond to the conditions brought on both by expansion and then by the pandemic. And I do want to come around to the pandemic and hear from you about the role that free and charitable clinics played during the height of COVID-19, whether it was through testing or direct care or vaccinations provided to thousands of patients at a time of, candidly, financial difficulty. Uh, I imagine perhaps both for the clinics and for some of the patients that you see, because uh, for the clinics, uh, I gather some of the traditional funding sources may not have been accessible and also demand for certain treatment services may have risen, especially for those who might have been separated from employment or lost coverage or things of that sort. So tell us about what the, the clinic's experience has been during the pandemic. Everything that you said is correct. The clinics responded by trying to continue to take care of patients during that most difficult period. And they, in order to do so, Julian, for the first time, really turned to telehealth in a big way to provide easier access, safer access for their patients to care, and 
they worked with the hospitals, a shout out to the hospitals here, which really did a wonderful job of responding to the pandemic under enormous pressures. And uh, the hospital association, very proactive in reaching out to us to see what they could do to help the clinics in the way of testing, in the way of vaccines. The Virginia Department of Health did the same. You know, I think it was a very good collaborative effort in the state of Virginia during the most difficult of times. And therefore, the clinics were able to get the testing they needed, the testing supplies, the vaccines, and they did vaccine thousands of individuals. And the clinics, as you well know, I think, Julian, are well positioned to reach some of the most vulnerable populations around the state. They're grassroots organizations, very trusted typically where they're located. And, you know, for some folks, uh, particularly undocumented, there was some nervousness, frankly, about showing up for a, a vaccine event, thinking that, you know, it might lead for them to other consequences. And with the clinics, I think there's been a well-established connection for a long time for newly arrived immigrants. And I think that that was key in terms of being able, again, to reach some of the most marginalized populations in the state. Many of these clinics, as you know, I think, can speak in, in multiple languages to their patients. The signage is in multiple languages. So anyway, the, the clinics, I think, responded well, but couldn't have done it frankly, without the support of the hospitals and health systems and the state. Appreciate you saying that, Rufus. And I, I think, again, it just it's a reinforcement of the notion that, you know, we all have a vested stake in the healthcare delivery system, you know, whether it's the social safety net providers or larger providers or primary care providers. Everyone, especially in a crisis situation like a global health pandemic, has a role to play in making sure that we reach all the pockets of the communities where people need service, where people need testing, where people need vaccines. So, again, it's a good reminder of that, and I appreciate you sharing that. We talked a little bit about the clinics and who they serve. Uh, I did want to just make sure that we make this point clear. From what I gather, a lot of the staff that that work at these clinics are folks that actually are clinical providers in other settings, and they're doing shifts or rotations at clinics on a volunteer basis. Can you talk about the support of volunteers and how, how that helps maintain the operations of these clinical facilities all around the state? That's the key to the clinics. We have thousands, frankly, of providers who take the time from their normal jobs, as you point out, to volunteer at the clinics, doctors, nurses, and they are the heartbeat, frankly, of these clinics. They, particularly during the pandemic, really put themselves out there in terms of their volunteer efforts on top of what had to be incredibly difficult work circumstances for many of them. And for that, we're eternally grateful. And, you know, one observation about these volunteers is that for them, it's often a feeling that they're going back to what maybe when they first studied in school to become a doctor or a nurse, they thought that they would really enjoy doing. And that is a lot of face-to-face -face time with patients. And in the free clinic settings, they have a little bit more time, honestly, to dig into someone's circumstance and to understand what might be behind their illness or their chronic condition social determinants of health that might be affecting them, whether it's housing or food scarcity or a lack of transportation. It does allow for what you might call a more holistic approach to some of these individuals. Some of the clinics, frankly, offer 
social determinants of health services. We have clinics, for instance, that are both shelters and clinics. Uh, we have other clinics that have very robust food pantries. And they know that if you can't address some of these root causes, then you're going to really have trouble providing effective care, particularly for those that have chronic conditions. And as you know, during the uh, pandemic, a lot of people unfortunately put off care. And so we're seeing now the result of that with people who have uh, worsened chronic conditions. And the clinics do a lot of preventative screening to try to stay on top of folks like that. And, you know, they're trying, just as the hospitals are through their uh, population health efforts, to swing things from sick care to more well care, if I can put it that way. You referenced several things in that response that I think are illuminating. Obviously, you know, ongoing work, whether it's through the Unite Virginia platform, to try to connect care providers at, at multiple layers, as you said, to get at some of these social factors to provide people with post-acute care services uh, and support services to improve their overall lives. So, you know, that's happening. And that's, again, this shared work that's occurring with the safety net providers and other clinical providers uh, in a primary care setting or elsewhere. Uh, so that's really important. And you also mentioned the role of, of screenings and, and preventative care, which, again, factors into broader community health. But also, I know that that's been a push of the free clinics. It's also something that, that other healthcare providers, including the hospitals, have emphasized in as we slowly work our way out of out of this pandemic period because so many people put off care. We, we know this from hospital-based data and service line utilization that so many people put off care during the pandemic, necessary care, sometimes leading to negative health consequences for them because they didn't want to seek care during a pandemic. So I know that that's been a point of emphasis for your organization as well, and it's a message that, that we'd want to repeat as well. I do want to give you an opportunity, Rufus, to tell people how they can uh, learn more about the free and charitable clinics, about how they, if they're so inclined, uh, if they feel moved to, to provide support, uh, because obviously your organization, in addition to receiving some public dollars, also uh, benefits from the generosity of individuals and organizations, uh, including hospitals, as you mentioned, that provide financial support. So for people that want to learn more about the Virginia Association of Free and Charitable Clinics, uh, how to get involved or perhaps to, to contribute, what resources or where would you direct them uh, online to get more information? Thank you, Julian. I would direct them to our website at freeclinicscare.org, freeclinicscare.org. And that is a site that we developed just in the last couple of years to do exactly what you're suggesting, to better connect with the public in Virginia. And what it allows for is if an individual is seeking care they can go to that site to find a clinic near them. Uh, if an individual would like to volunteer in a clinic, there's an ability to do that through the site. And also, as you said, if somebody is generous enough to want to donate to a clinic near them, they can do so through that site as well. So we've been running a public awareness campaign over the last couple of years to really elevate the profile of the clinics and to really reach, as we discussed earlier, this population of folks out there that uh, are in that asset-limited, income-constrained, but employed population that might be as high as you know, 300% FBL, 400% FBL, may not be aware that the safety net is an option for them. So 
that's the site that they ought to go to, and, and we're more than happy to do anything we can to help anybody interested in in connecting with the clinics. All right. Once again, that's freecliniccares.org. So make sure if you're listening and you want to learn more or get involved, please visit that that address. And before we wrap things up, Rufus, we do have a tradition here on the Patients Come First podcast to ask each guest a pair of personal questions to give our audience a sense of who they are beyond the work they do. To keep things interesting, we have a list of 10 mystery questions from which you can choose. <laughs> so if you would, please pick two numbers between 1 and 10, and I'll ask you the corresponding questions. All right, I'll go with number 2 and number 8. Okay. 2. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received, and why does it stick with you? I think the best piece of advice I ever received was the idea that if you're going to serve others, you might want to take the time to walk in their shoes a bit. I know that's hard to do completely, but to try to understand somebody's perspective and to empathize with them, it's necessary, I think, to try to, frankly, get out in the field. In our case, it would be to get out into the clinics and really kind of understand the patient's story and what they're experiencing and the barriers they face to healthcare. And maybe that, you know, from that, obviously, you would get a much better idea of what we can do as an organization or the clinics can to make access to care even better in the state of Virginia. Okay. Well, that is good advice and uh, a timely maxim, if you will. To understand someone's circumstance, walk a mile in their shoes. Certainly wise words. And then you also selected number eight. Number eight is, if you were miraculously granted one wish, what would you wish for? I'll stick with healthcare. I, I, I really, truly wish for access to care for everyone uh, in a sense that it's as available as possible to people and that it is as easy as possible for them to access care. And I think, you know, our health system has made great strides in that direction, but we can always be better. And so that's what I would wish for. Constant improvement. It's always a, an important aspiration. Well, Rufus, I do want to thank you for being with us today and for sharing a few moments of your time. And with that, that's going to bring us to the close of another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe so you know when new episodes are available. And we want to once again thank our guest, Rufus Phillips, CEO of the Virginia Association of Free and Charitable Clinics, for being with us today. So thank you, sir. Thank you, Julian, and our thanks to the HHA for everything they do.